Good day, nerds. On March 2nd, Nerds on Film will be commencing yet another live Oscar podcast. You, the fan, will be able to stream a live Nerdonomy commentary track for the 86th Annual Academy Awards. Make sure to stay tuned to the Nerdonomy Network in the coming weeks for more details. And go to Nerdonomy.com to sign up for the second annual Nerdonomy Oscar Challenge. For more details on this challenge, go to our blog and gaze upon the fiery gauntlet that my brother Brian has thrown down. And until then, here's our podcast. Uh, Brian, you you do know that we are going to be talking a little bit about the Philadelphia experiment tonight, right? Yes, absolutely. So, do you want me to take the lead on it? No, I, don't I know got it. You know... it's, no, of course, because it's the, it's a story about a, a young man who, one day on the playground, he gets into a fight with uh, presumably someone of the of the gang variety, and then uh, his his parents, who are very upset with him, tell him that he has to live with his auntie and uncle in Bel Air. To me, that's this is the story of the tribe of the human spirit, really. Brian, that is the premise of the '90s television series, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I know it is a story all about how his life got turned upside down. No, no, no. This Brian, is it's critical. We have to Brian, talk. the Philadelphia Experiment, the ship disappearing, teleportation, time travel. Oh, right. Yeah, I know nothing about that. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. Sir, hello. How are you? I'm, I'm fine. I'm a little I just confused. wanted to talk like that. I just wanted to sound <laughs> hello. Okay. Yes. Are you going to do this the entire episode? Yes. I think I should leave. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay, I think good. everyone will get very annoyed. Yes, don't do that. How's it going? I'm good. Good. You know what? I'm good. I'm actually very depressed, but I'm putting on a good show. Oh. I, I couldn't tell. Yeah, why, are you, why are you depressed? Well, you see, my favorite football team got their asses cut off and handed to them by the Seattle Seahawks yesterday. And that's so. that's difficult for birds to do because, you know, without opposable thumbs, being able to actually... Those talons, man, they're vicious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's You do not want to screw with Seahawks. Yeah. They are Though, mean. I do think it's really funny because being a Broncos fan and knowing that both the cities were cities where technically marijuana is you know quasi legal uh now i mean it's it's legal but just the federal government technically it's still legal anyway we won't go well that's not that's a topic for another episode but what i'm just thinking about the whole time is that obviously when you have marijuana you're you're less inclined to just be energetic energetic or coherent or really just angry or <laughs> and so i'm just thinking the whole time when usually when you have denver fans just going oh oh you sons of the whole time they're just going Man, this is really intense. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. We are really, really, really doing bad. And that's bad. So that's the gist of what you're getting at. It explains the Velveeta cheese uh, shortage. It does explain the Velveeta cheese (laughs) shortage. I also think it's highly ironic that everyone's talked about it that the week that marijuana became legal, that uh, Twinkies declared bankruptcy, or that Hostess <laughs> declared bankruptcy. <laughs> Which doesn't make any sense at all, because you would think that once the marijuana becomes legal, that that would skyrocket. In fact, it was probably the legalization of marijuana that brought the Hostess company I'm surprised, back. I'm kind of surprised there wasn't a Pop-Tart shortage. Well, let's, let, let's, let's acknowledge something. Just because it was made legal doesn't mean that people weren't already smoking it in copious amounts this is before true. the law was passed. This is true. Anyway. Uh, anyhow, so, yes. Aside but, from the fact that my de facto favorite football team is 
in shambles at the moment. Um, other than that, I'm I'm okay. Actually, I'm excited because I'm my birthday's in a few days. So you know, twenty nine. It's a good year. It's my last birthday. Right? It's your last birthday? My last birthday. I just always tell people I'm twenty nine. Oh, okay. it works I for thought... women. It works. Why can't we work it for, do it for men? I thought you were gonna drop another bomb on me and be like, hey, <laughs> "Yes, I have stage four lymphoma." <laughs> <laughs> That's not even remotely funny. It's really not funny and at yeah, all. I'm no. laughing at it. <laughs> it's not funny at all. Oh um, no, my brother has corrupted me. <laughs> yeah, it's all of us really. Yeah. Okay. Well, I did not watch the Super Bowl. No, you did a puzzle. I did a puzzle. <laughs> Beautiful puzzle of the Eiffel Tower, uh, by Ravensburger which is one of the finest puzzle producers in all of the world. Uh, for those of you who, who were not listening to one of our episodes of Nerds on Film lately, uh, I've revealed to the world that I am, a, I am a puzzle fanatic. I love puzzles. I enjoy going to the thrift store and buying puzzles with the hope that it will have a missing piece so that I can then recreate that missing piece. There's actually a psychological term for it now. Puzzle maniac. Puzzle maniac. Well, it's true. No, I did that, and then I watched Spartacus, uh, Blood and Sand with my very pregnant wife, who loves movies and shows like that, TV shows like that, which I really think they should rename. It should be Spartacus. Blood, 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 CG blood, uh, boobs, and some sand, which really pretty much sums up the entire show there. So there's not a lot of substance, but it's a good, fun watch full of historical inaccuracies uh, that's actually quite a bit of fun. Yeah, what is it you said? It's like it's it's like if Gladiator. Rome? No, 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 no. So no. it's like Gladiator. It's if Gladiator and three hundred and three hundred had a baby, and then that baby grew up to become a stripper. That's that's what it's like. Slow mo and everything. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Cool. Oh, so you're probably wondering who that mysterious voice is. Who is that mysterious voice? Hi guys. Ever so often we decide, you know what? We need to bring another nerd on this show, another history nerd. And, you know, history can be contemporary, too. So we're going to, and that's, and I think his knowledge will fit into the topic for tonight. And go ahead and introduce yourself, sir. I am Anders Ericsson. Anders Ericsson. Could that be any more Scandinavian? Not one bit. Maybe if it was Leaf. (laughs) Is that your middle name? I wish. (laughs) We went with, uh, we went with William for the middle name. I guess I wasn't part of the decision, but. Well, he was a famous, famous (laughs) If I had a choice. Take three times if you like this, if you like this middle name. (laughs) No, mom. (laughs) <laughs> how would you spell leaf in the womb that would be very uncomfortable anyway tell us a little bit about yourself uh i am a photographer and uh filmmaker here in uh san jose california i uh i studied at uc santa cruz and i currently work with you guys yes you do yes i do yes we do at our super secret company which we have not revealed where we work but we really, i kind of like that i kind of like the area of mystery it's mystery. the cobra base <laughs> it's it is <laughs> Don't say it! God, now we're going to have to kill him. Can we at least do it after the episode? After the episode. Okay, good. <clears throat> I gotta go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wanted to bring you on the show tonight, and we'll get to the topic soon. But uh, before we do that, we are going to do our, our customary bit of listener feedback. This week in listener feedback. And Brian, why don't, you, um, why don't you go ahead and kick us off tonight? First piece of feedback comes from Michelle. Uh, subject, Napoleon and Audible. Funny story you may enjoy. I started listening to the latest podcast in my car on the way home from work, but when I got home, I had to pause it to spend some time studying my art history class. While studying 19th century art, I spent some time reading about Napoleon and the inaccuracy of his portrait on a horse. When I was finished, I started the podcast back up, and less than five minutes later, Napoleon shows up. (laughs) I laughed out loud, seriously. Not a lull, but an actual laugh. 
I love the podcast, and I actually finally signed up for an Audible because of your promotion. I'm listening to Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald. It's a great look at 20s history and the famous people in the world of the Fitzgeralds. Zelda Fitzgerald was the wife of the author F. Scott Fitzgerald, in case you guys didn't know that. And uh, I'm loving it, and it's a great way to spend time while uh, waiting in between Nerds on History episodes. Thanks for the awesomeness you deliver to my iPhone every week. Well, you are very welcome, Michelle. It was a pleasure. Thank you it so was. much. And we have to really give a big thank you to Greg. For which uh, our Napoleon would have never existed. Exactly. And we've actually gotten a couple of listeners come to us to tell us how much they loved him being on the show. Yeah, he was a lot of fun. He was great. And he would, would certainly be back in the future at some point. Indeed he shall. Uh, the next piece of listener feedback comes from Eric. And not... From you? Me. No, no, no. No, not from not, me. Okay. Not, not me. I did get confused. It's like, why did Eric write feedback for himself? I've done that before. For Nerds on Film, anyway. Yes, you have. But no, not, not, not for the show that I actually co-host on a regular basis. That would well, you be know, silly. I, it would be silly, but I also wouldn't put it past you, surprisingly. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. I just... you Maybe you were just being silly. I don't know. I wasn't... I didn't <laughs> think it was serious feedback. Okay. Yeah. Can, I, can I get to the listener feedback? Yes, you can. Thank you. Uh, Eric writes, thanks for keeping me awake. Brian and Eric, I want to say thank you for the amazing podcasts I stumbled upon NOH a few months ago while looking for something to listen to while on patrol. I am a rural deputy sheriff, and I spend a lot of time roaming the highways and dirt roads of my 500-square-mile county, and on slow, cold winter nights, you guys have helped me uh, keep alert and, more importantly, awake. Uh, NOH is an awesome discussion of history the way it should be taught through conversation. That has actually been a problem at the times because as I listen, I often find myself wanting to ask you guys a question or to interject a point into your discussion. When I catch myself about to ask a question to my car stereo, I sometimes question my own sanity for a second. Thank you guys for the great show you put out. It's always entertaining and enlightening. You can ask a few unfortunate people who have been riding in the back seat and uh, through their drunken or angry stupors, they have listened to countless nerd references they don't get. Keep up the great work, guys. Uh, P.S. I tried listening to nerds on film while at work, and I have found myself going through the same elaborate routine as another law enforcement officer listener detailed. Uh, it's rather nerve-wracking to have to check in car microphone headset, radio headset, portable radio, uh, and that the windows are up every time I hear Sean's voice. Uh, <laughs> thus, NOF has to be saved for when I'm uh, in my uh, personal vehicle. Well, Eric, thank you very much. Yes, we do know that... Um, Sometimes you got to be a little careful when Sean is around that mic. Sometimes. Sean's an R, automatic R, sometimes NC-17 when yeah. you put it on the podcast. Yeah. Indeed. I, I just love that we are apparently the favorite podcast of, of, of law enforcement and officers. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I think and clericals. Something about that is really cool. We're kind of serving our community, if you think yeah, about it. We're, it, we're helping totally. these extremely important people stay awake and alert and keeping them safe. There you go. Um, yeah. And yes, we're probably giving ourselves way too much credit. Well, you know, let's be real here. They are serving and protecting our children, our elderly, our citizens. We are serving and protecting their earlobes. Exactly. That sounds really gross, actually, when you think about <laughs> it. I, I didn't mean it that way. You get the point I'm trying to make is, is that I'm, I'm happy that people find our stuff engaging and entertaining. So there you have it. There you do have it. I think that is actually it for listener feedback this week. So I believe uh, now is about the time to get into... Uh, today's conversation before we do that i just wanted to say we did a really interesting episode about a year ago on conspiracy theories we got a chance to talk about the big ones right you know jfk's JFK, assassination yep the moon landing roswell roswell exactly a couple stuff. of a couple of more obscure ones pope john paul the first as well 
and uh, we decided, you know, it was time to revisit. And we we have rarely revisited a topic. In fact, this might be the first time we've ever revisited a topic. Officially, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, folks, here we go. More conspiracy theories. And that's why we actually we got Anders on the show tonight. Because he actually can't approach us about this. I mean, like, let's... Or did we approach... Did you approach... Did we approach you? Did you approach we, we mutually approached one another. It was funny. We both started walking towards each other and talking about it. It was very comical. Yeah. I was actually hiding in the rafters. And as uh, as Eric passed below me, I just jumped on him and screamed, conspiracy. <laughs> it held was, him there until he said it, I could come. It was good. I, I enjoyed it. I think that's a Swedish attack maneuver, actually. If I'm not mistaken. We call it the berserker. The berserker. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so where should we start with this? What's a, a good, more obscure conspiracy theory we can begin on? Well, Anders and I were uh, we were at a computer and we we were talking about you know broaching the subject of him coming on the show and what would we want to talk about and somehow it got to conspiracy theories and then we uh, we pulled up a wiki page that had a whole list of them and one of them that stood out immediately that both Anders and I kind of went ooh about was uh, the Philadelphia experiment and I know we alluded to it in our cold open this has nothing Again, to do with this the is a story all about how no right a group of people's lives oh. were turned upside down but oh really because they were they became invisible <laughs> <laughs> exactly infused in the metal infused yeah. in the metal exactly or so we were led to believe right so let me actually say what i believe is the actual legend here because i do actually remember hearing the story happen okay supposedly there was a ship where they were using magnetic fields to basically bend light around them thus making them invisible and supposedly the the electromagnetic fields were so strong that the molecular alignment of people were, were being messed around, and so they got fused into the metal of the ship. There's a couple stories about it, actually. Um, That's one other of them, people say, yeah. yeah, other people say they were bombarding the ship with electromagnetic waves in order to make it invisible to radar, ah. but not to bend light, and that this may have eventually unwound itself and morphed into what is now uh, called the... Philadelphia experiment where the ship disappears and winds up 41 years in the future. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of different takes on it. Mm-hmm. I think um, so we've, so we've now we've now gone to invisibility, uh cloaking devices, time travel. Um basically well, this is a fringe episode. Yeah. Oh, it's lovely. Well, there's yeah. the famous movie of the same name, The Philadelphia Experiment, right? 1984. Yep, 1984. Awesome B movie. Uh, every nerd should go see it. It's it's hilariously bad. And in, in just the ways that make it good, they definitely took the core story and modified it and changed it. And that part of the conspiracy has now morphed and, and been rewritten back into the original conspiracy as well. Uh, when we When we lay it out as it was supposed to have been reported in the 1950s, uh, there was a ship. This was at uh, a port in, in Philadelphia, uh, the USS Eldridge. And this was a U.S. Navy destroyer escort. Okay, so it was a relatively small vessel. It's an escort ship. Uh, and supposedly in the summer and fall of 1943, they began futzing around with some special experiment that was meant to work on a theory that Einstein had created. And the idea behind this is, is this um, universal, fear, uh, universal field theory. Unified. Yes, the unified uh, field theory. And the idea is that electromagnetism and gravity, if you could somehow get them to be manipulated together at the same time, Brian, like you were stating, you could you know, somehow bend the light around an object, thus displacing it from your field of vision 
Uh, and this is this is a theory, obviously. It's something, it's one of Einstein's many famous imagination theories, right? Where he goes through and he, he dreams up these ideas and puts himself into the place and imagines the results of them. Well, to be fair, that's how he did all of his early, early research, because he was working in a patent office. He didn't have the resources to conduct these experiments, so he did them all in his head. Yeah, he had and, his imagination. Exactly. And it's an interesting theory, but the myth tells us that there were two such experiments. Uh, the first one was performed in um, sometime in the late summer, and it resulted in the ship being turned invisible. Now, some people who had come out years later and said that they had actually experienced it claimed that during that period of invisibility, that the the ship itself, the bulkheads actually fused with individuals. They kind of got thrown around in the, in the turbulence of it all. and Lost in the warp. Yeah, exactly. You kind of got stuck in it. And we see that in science fiction. It's been recreated in science fiction movies for years after this this report of this very famous And an episode computers. of Fringe, actually. Yeah, yeah. There was a whole bank robbery scene where they got, they were using this uh, device that was essentially using electromagnetic fields to be able to phase through walls. And the device breaks and someone gets stuck halfway through the vault door. So they end up having to shoot him uh, right there on the bank job. It's kind of a typical Fox fair now. It's just very dark and twisted a bit intense very intense excellent i had to make a media reference sorry no that's fine i mean go I for mean, it because... we wouldn't be a nerd podcast if we didn't make a, a sci-fi reference well wouldn't it be the philadelphia experiment if it mm. wasn't a sci-fi reference because exactly. it's been done so many times now no kidding um but the second experiment is the one that is supposed to have been much more impressive and that one was on uh the evening of october 28th 1943 where apparently after they had failed, and this actually, excuse me, was uh, mid-July, it was July 22nd, 1943, was the first experiment. I just uh, dis- rediscovered that in my notes. The ship again, they recalibrate the equipment, right? Because that's always what's wrong with it. It's just not calibrated correctly. And when they try it again, this time it doesn't just go invisible, it disappears. And it reappears 200 miles away in Norfolk, Virginia. Norfolk. Is that right you say it? Well, that's what they say in England. Oh. Norfolk. Norfolk. Norfolk? Well, go of Norfolk. Okay. I know I know. Stevie will be happy. Stevie will be happy, yes. Norfolk, Virginia, and boom, psh, just appears there. And then after a couple minutes, disappears and goes back to Philly. Now, how did this myth come into existence? Do you guys know? No idea. Uh, that was your part of the research. Well, fair enough. I mean, it was just <laughs> it was a question to kind of get the conversation going, Brian. Um, uh, sorry. Because prior to the 1950s, no one had ever heard this story. There was nothing weird about the naval base in Philadelphia. There was nothing weird coming out of that area. There was nothing about ships disappearing or invisibility fields or any well, of this. 43 would have been mid-involvement with, with our involvement in World War II. So. But my point is it took 10 years right. before anyone even heard about this. Interesting. And it was because of a series of letters that were written by a gentleman by the name of Carl Meredith Allen. And he sent them to an author who was an astronomer... Uh, M.K. Jessup. Jessup wrote this book called UFOs, The Case for UFOs, excuse me, is the full title of the book. And it was moderately popular at the time, right? UFOs were a big phenomena, right? People were talking about them all the time. They were in the news. And this person, this, this Jessup, totally ate up this whole report that Allen was actually serving on board a ship at the time of the second instance, the second experiment, uh, which appeared right in, in front of them. The ship materialized, if you will, uh, in front of Allen's ship. And this is what he had reported. It was the He was on the SS Andrew 
for Seth. And uh, he told this fantastic story, and he heard all these other reports, of course, right? He had had this other information that came uh, along with this experience he had years later, right? Uh, and that is where he heard the stories about sailors getting sick and slipping into madness and suffering from dementia and, and, and being fused into bulkheads. And Jessup just ate it up. Absolutely loved it. Went ahead, kind of campaigned for this guy and tried to write books about it, tried to get it out there and, and successfully did so, but not in the way that um, Jessup had hoped. Uh, in fact, four years after that initial contact with Alan, Jessup would uh, commit suicide. Wow. Yeah, out of money. His wife had left him, had absolutely nothing, um, nothing to his life any longer, and, and decided to shoot himself rather than continue. Mysteriously, the gun was not found. Oh, as as it always is, right? Mysteriously, apparent suicides mm. are always what are involved mm-hmm. in uh, in conspiracy theories. And there's a surprising amount of um, police sirens going on tonight. Conspiracy? I think so. Eric, why is there a large bag of money underneath the table? You weren't supposed to see that. Get the gun. <laughs> and Anders, let's continue the conversation uh, now that Brian is out of the picture. So, you know, it's it's pretty incredible, of course, uh, a, a story. Because if you think about the idea behind it, yeah, absolutely. Einstein came up with some pretty clever ideas about how space travel could be done in the future, how we can manipulate the environment around us and be able to facilitate it and do things kind of like this, if you will. He never wrote specifically about changing locations, right? This whole teleportation element that comes into the story. But he definitely wrote about the time delay. He wrote about light bending. And he wasn't the only one to write about it because in that same, the case for UFOs, right? That same book that Jessup had written, he talked about the exact same thing. So, you know, if we have this Alan who maybe has mental illness, maybe is wanting to get some attention, I don't know what. He reads this book, he takes it as an opportunity to tell this fantastic story, and then it gets blown out of proportion and becomes the, the Philadelphia experiment that we, that we know today. What I think is most interesting about this is the fact that there is some truth behind it. And you hear a story like this, and you can't imagine where there would be any any basis in reality. But America was actually not the only country in the world who was trying to work on invisibility, at least invisibility from Nazi contraptions. Canadian scientists had come up with a way of solving a very big problem for their allies in England, who were being attacked ferociously by these rather clever... Uh, mines that were being deployed by the Nazis. They used a series of uh, magnets to actually attach themselves to the hull of the ship, so as the ship went by, even if it was just in close proximity to the mine, it wouldn't set it off at a distance, it would set it off right up against the hull. And they were, they were devastating. So they come up with this rather clever idea of electrifying the hull. Uh, they would run electric current on the outside, and they would create essentially this gigantic electric magnet that would be uh, set up to kind of repulse, and it would push the mines out of the way and away from from harm. And of course, they shared this idea with their counterparts in the Navy in America, and they went ahead and were doing experiments uh, of the same nature there at Philadelphia. So Hmm. yeah, high current electricity magnets in this case, right? But I'm sorry, there was no time travel teleportation. Just wasn't happening. Though it would make a good episode for Doctor Who. It's actually been uh, mentioned in Doctor Who. 
Has it really? It has. How did I not yeah. know that? And I'm the, the Uber Hoovian. Yeah, you've seen every single episode. Allegedly. Conspiracy I have... theory? I how... think so. How dare you? How Apparently, dare you, sir? It was in an audio drama called oh. The Macros. Okay. I haven't I, I will admit I haven't listened to very many of the audio dramas. Ah! Ah! Wow, Brad. <laughs> is it a big finish audio production? It is. Yeah, big finish is the ones who usually do Doctor Who. I'm just fascinated by this um this story. It's so amazing that things like this can get picked up and recycled and reborn and grow into new things and get picked up by media and then redistributed and then they become these cultural touchstones that have maybe no basis in reality, but it's that kernel of the story attached to all that military industrial work that we were doing back in the 50s. It's so fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, that that's pretty common of the 1950s, right? Yeah. America was doing a lot of stuff. And you think about it, we just we were coming out of the Second World War. We were taking a place as a, as a superpower as we had never really done quite before, right, as, as a nation. And the budget that was being awarded to the military was enormous so much larger than it had been uh leading up to the second world war and even larger than at the conclusion of the second world war right now the kind of cold war was on and there was this race to develop bigger and more powerful bombs to intimidate our our enemies or our perceived enemies right Right. so who who we thought of were our, our enemies namely russia right and and china and other communist countries that we perceived as being threats right and the whole country kind of went along with it, right? So ideas about government conspiracies to cover up, you know, advanced technology is not out of the question. What doesn't make any sense to me is the fact that even if we had two failed experiments that resulted in the death and dementia of multiple people, if we had actually managed to move a freaking ship 200 miles from one place to the other, you really think we would have stopped? <laughs> I mean, come on. If we were lucky enough to land that guy in water after the first try, maybe we don't try it again because maybe it lands in a school. Maybe it does, but you think the military, uh, American military would have given a crap? I think they would have moved it to some freaking uh, atoll or uh, remote island out in the middle of nowhere and kept doing experiments, and they would have perfected it until we had invisible everythings. Invisible teleporting everythings. Yes, I mean, what is more absolutely frightening than the idea of an atomic bomb that is invisible and can suddenly appear in the middle of a major city of your enemy and then go off and no one can say where it came from? All you can see is the wake of the ship spreading out like those velociraptors in Lost World. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And that's the other thing. The ship's invisible, but it still gives off a wake. I'm sorry. I, I just, it doesn't Jumping really make Jumping dolphins suddenly being smacked out of midair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this, whole, this whole conspiracy theory is a bit far-fetched. But there are so many people who believe it absolutely happened and believe that the reason why the U.S. military did not continue development is it so frightened them or they were so concerned about some of the results they found that they thought it could bring about, you know, the end of the world or something, which is just BS. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the CIA and the U.S. government have actually had some leaked documents proving that they've been up to far more nefarious stuff than uh, trying to make things invisible. So, yeah, like pretending that they cared too much. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pretending that they cared too much maybe is not the right way to go about. Yeah, you're telling me why we haven't seen more invisible ships. You're telling me by now nobody's leaked any information on this. 
that it's a handful of people who've claimed that they've actually seen anything. And they all came out after the initial story broke in the 1950s. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. But it's great science fiction. I just wish somebody would make a good Philadelphia Experiment movie. Because I've got some plot ideas that would be freaking awesome. You know, there was one in 1984. Uh, executive produced by John Carpenter himself. And it has got the most ridiculous trailer I've ever seen. I'm <laughs> waiting to see the Mystery Science Theater crew right in front of it. Oh, I want to see that happen. You know what? Screw Let's get some laugh tracks, tracks yeah. going. Can yeah. we just riff track it ourselves? Let's do it. <laughs> we've talked about that before. Yeah, we have talked about that. One other thing we've talked about is uh, Brian and I have this amazing... Well, it's mostly Brian's idea. I've just tagged on to it. But creating a nerd-themed gourmet restaurant, uh-huh. right? If we ever have a Philly cheesesteak on that menu, it needs to be called the Philadelphia Experiment. And then we'll put something on there that shouldn't be there, like anchovies or no, something. No, no, yeah. no. It's a blank plate, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It suddenly <laughs> appeared at the table next to you. And and, and, and we have to charge like $15 for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they can take the plate home. Of course. Yeah, that's there's at least that's you give them pimento loaf, and it's like they fused into the. <laughs> <laughs> that's <good>. pimento loaf. <laughs> oh, that's genius. You awesome. need to have you around a little more often, Anders. <laughs> I think what we need to talk about for a moment, based off of a story like this, is well, what's what really breeds the nature of a conspiracy theory mm-hmm. to beginning, right? And there's actually theories on this, lots of theories on this. Wait, you're uh, telling me there's a theory about conspiracy theories? It's kind of meta, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, the theories are a conspiracy. The one I find interesting, just knowing very, very little about the argument, but the Jesse Walker is a journalist. He's written for every major newspaper in the country. has a theory that there's essentially five different types of enemies that are available. Uh, that are available, that, uh, that are among... The sources and the forces... Uh, perpetrating these conspiracies. Correct. So there's like the enemy within, the enemy outside, the enemy above, the enemy below. Uh, and I, what's the fifth one? I'm kind of drawing a blank. I have to say, though, just to flex my Doctor Who knowledge a little bit, three of those that you mentioned are all titles of, ep- of Doctor Who episodes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's very good wordsmithing, I will say. We got enemy outside, enemy within, enemy above, enemy below, and benevolent conspiracies, so angelic forces working behind the scenes to improve the world and help people. Oh, so like so we're friends. Yeah, we're talking about pyramids, aliens, ancient aliens, that kind of thing. Gotcha. We're so, not talking about that. So, so the, the, the good guys who work in secret. Exactly. Okay. I can Men help. in black. Gotcha. Okay, fair enough. Warren uh, Buffett. We're talking about Warren Buffett. <laughs> let's, just, let's just say it. Sure. <laughs> Berkshire Hathaway is actually a secret philanthropic organization. Yes, I'll believe that. They're a sponsor, right? Uh, yeah, I wish. <laughs> I wish. One share of Berkshire Hathaway could pay for uh, everything for the everything. next five years. Exactly. Yeah, one share alone. What's up, Berkshire? Yes, Warren Buffett. Please share some of your plentiful choices with us. Because, of course, he's a listener. We know that. Yes. He's got to be. Uh, he's one of the lizard men. <laughs> Wow. Let's not insult the potential sponsor. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Lizard Man is a very prestigious title. If you're on the miniseries V, sure. Yes, you. Are. Yes, it's a very prestigious title. Yeah. Or you're among the subterranean uh, people, the, the, the mole people. The Lizard Men are above them. I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. <laughs> so They're a uh, ruling class. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just going to go with it. I'm I just, just love how upset Brian is at this. <laughs> I just... I just I just, I have nothing to say to that. I have nothing to say to that. So I'm just going to move forward. <laughs> um, what you find here is that you've got people who make an argument that is compelling. 
you know? Yeah. And people who maybe don't have the training in critical thinking to dissect the holes in the argument, it's compelling enough where they just, they, they become convinced of it. And because of that, it becomes very hard to break that belief because you're already dealing with someone who doesn't care for holes in logic. So therefore they will fill the holes in themselves. Right. People who are looking for a deeper meaning in something. And that's not to say that there that you shouldn't search for deeper meaning at all, but you also have to look at it with a critical mind, with the mind of a, someone who is somewhat skeptical and be willing to question the argument that you're, that you're being given before you can choose to accept it. There's well, it's exciting, you know? Yeah. It's exciting. I remember when I was like six, seven years old going into the school library and finding this old, dusty, hardcover book full of aliens and uh, ball of lightning and uh, cattle mutilation and all these crazy things that sort of spoke of some world outside of uh, what I was being told I needed to do. And it it, uh, it was kind of cool. It was exciting. There was something else out there. There are forces that I couldn't control. That's very compelling, I think. Yeah, that idea do. is very compelling. Sure, there's definitely that angle as well, absolutely. I mean, we were talking about this before we were recording, that there's pretty much there's two sides, right? There's the people on the outside, and there's the people who are who are in on the conspiracy theory. And so the people who think they've caught wind of it, they they consider themselves part of the in crowd. And everyone else just they don't they don't buy it because they just they're they are the proverbial sheep, as it were. Yeah. They're, they're they, the ones who figured it out are the special ones. They're right. the ones who have a special insight that nobody else sees except for them. Exactly. And it just keeps making you feel more and more important. And therefore you start buying into more and more of these because you're like, oh well, if I was perceptive enough to understand this one conspiracy, then clearly I can see all the conspiracies that are going on. And they tend to be the people who buy into pretty much every conspiracy that's out there. Sure. And this continues. In fact, this leads me into the next uh, segment because it wouldn't be <laughs> a Nerds in History episode if we didn't talk about something Catholic. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> um, so one major conspiracy theory out there in general is that Catholicism is a false religion. I mean, that, that's the essential argument. Right. The divine in Christianity that, you know, the, the essential break between uh, the Catholics, the Orthodox, and the um, the Protestants is that somewhere down the line, Christianity deviated from, from Christ's original intentions, and the Protestants are the ones who are continuing the true message of the religion, whereas the Catholics and the Greek Orthodox are uh, the idolaters, as they were. They are... They are propagating what is the appearance of Christianity, but is in fact a veiled continuation of earlier religions. Some say it's uh, the Babylonian religion that we talk about way back in the, the Old Testament with the prophet Jeremiah. They also reference it as saying, well, it was just the Roman religion just respun with the Christian figures that were, that were put inside of it. So the thing we have to understand here is where was this born out of? The Protestant Reformation was, was born from, from two, really two main figureheads. You've got Martin Luther and you've got John Calvin. They are essentially the two hubs of which all other major forms of Protestant thought broke off from. Luther was a monk. He was in the Catholic clergy who saw a lot of issues, a lot of, a lot of valid issues with what was going on in the Catholic religion, including the fact of the selling of indulgences. You know, indulgences haven't gone away, by the way. They're still in the religion. We just don't sell them anymore because we realized that was wrong. You know, and lots of lots of abuses that were taking taking place. And then John Calvin, who does the same thing, you know, he basically, he saw the hierarchy of the church, the leadership of the church, as a, as a mockery of Christianity, of what Christ's really, his original intentions were. So he was 
so uh, anti-papist that, I mean, it was to the point where they, what Calvinists would go through and they would whitewash churches. They, they would actually rip out all the monuments to, to the saints and everything like that, and they would just make it, the, the whole goal was that you were worshiping the word, the word of God, not the imagery of God. So the reason why I bring this up is because one of the mainstream Protestant groups now is the Presbyterian Church. In, right. Right. And the Presbyterian Church, and this is, by the way, this is not to sound anti-Protestant at all. No, people have the right to believe whatever they, they want, but it's important to know where, where the idea gets rooted from. And mainly one person who was kind of the center point of this, uh, who wrote, wrote a religious pamphlet. So even to, to narrow it down even further, really. Absolutely. Yeah, we're talking about Alexander Hislop, who is a, a Scottish theologian, a Presbyterian. The Church of Scotland actually is pres- a Presbyterian church. And this is a break off of that Presbyterian church. Because there was a schism, if I'm, if I'm correct. Uh, there, is a, there was a schism. The thing about the Presbyterian church is it is very unhierarchical. Whereas Lutheranism is okay with there being some hierarchy, they have bishops, they have, uh, they don't call them priests, but they have reverends who effectively act as priests. Luther didn't establish a hierarchy because he was literally afraid the world was about to end. He thought the apocalypse was going to be coming within their lifetime. Right. So he didn't bother establishing a formal hierarchy. Um, The synods came, uh, and Lutheranism came after that when they realized that wasn't happening. Uh, Presbyterianism is, there is an organization, there is a consortium, there is a president in the Presbyterian Church, but there's not a formal hierarchy. You are just a, you're, you're just a pastor of a church. You know, there, there isn't really, a, there's no equivalent to a bishop. And that's because the term Presbyterian means, presbyter is the root word for where priest comes from. So it's meant to only be at the level of a pastor, not really go beyond that. Anyway, just that tangent, my apologies. Alexander Hislop wrote this pamphlet called The Two Babylons, and it was definitely very anti-Catholic, and it was published uh, in 1853, but then it was later put into a book in 1919. And so he was the one who was basically talking about how it was the veiled uh, cover of the Babylonian religion. And why do people think this? A lot of this has to do with the fact that the Babylonian religion was, well, polytheistic, number one, and the fact that the Babylonian religion, they worshipped idols. They they believed that this the statue of the god they were they were praying to was in fact a physical manifestation. Right, it could be embodied by the soul and spirit of that god. Exactly. So when you look at the Catholic religion and you look at the fact that we have shrines devoted to saints and you know, we, we have whole prayers and masses devoted to the Virgin Mary, to someone who doesn't know the full meanings of it, it does look very pantheonistic. I can understand why someone would feel that way don't, about it. Don't many uh, Christian and Catholic holidays fall coincidentally in line with many old holidays as well? Like pagan pagan, pagan yeah, and yeah, Babylonian and, holidays? And there's the Catholic Church has made no illusions about that either. Those were intended mergers right. with because they saw a similar value, a similar parallel that they were putting two together. Right. We talked about that with Halloween and with Christmas. And- sure. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about religions that are developing in the Levant, mm-hmm. in the cradle of civilization, in the place where Christianity was born. So obviously you're going to have some kind of sharing that's going to go on, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to have some imagery and some iconography that's going to pass from one to the other. It's not a surprise. It's not a surprise at all. Exactly. The good news about this pamphlet is that it hasn't really held up to scholarly scrutiny. Um, <laughs> well, you again, think? <laughs> much, like, much like the Philadelphia Project. Yeah, so most people who have gone to doctoral degrees in theological studies, they have to study the history of Christianity, which means you can't ignore the fact that the Catholic Church is part of that because the first 1,500 years of church history, was it was all 
the Catholic Church and then the Orthodox see, and of course a couple of other branches that broke off in in the Middle East as well. But you can't deny that there are traditions that are that go rooted back into that. Some of the criticisms that they've they've given is that it's historically inaccurate and sometimes it is blatantly just dishonest. And someone even once called it uh, a tribute to know nothing religious bigotry with shoddy scholarship and and uh, and historical inaccuracies. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and a nonsensical th- thesis. So clearly, it this was not popular amongst the scholarly community. And of course, those who would deny this would say, "Well, they're just part of the system. They're just they're just part of the ones who don't, who just don't get it." You know, it make it make for a great Dan Brown novel. Yeah, <laughs> it would make for a good Dan I'm, Brown. I'm, I'm going to share a, a story for a second. So I dated a girl who was whose family was Calvinist. And I was in their house, and they had a book of false religions. What? A book of the book of false. It was meant to be a cautionary book, right? Ones that you, ones you should avoid. Amazing. It, so it goes through, and you know, you've got the more contemporary choices. You've got Scientology um, <laughs> in there. You, you, unfortunately, it goes against. It goes to Judaism is considered a false religion. All the Eastern religions, uh, Mormonism makes the list as well. And then they mention Roman Catholicism. There's a whole large section of that book devoted to Roman Catholicism on its own. To being a false religion. Yeah. So, I mean, th- thankfully, when you look at it and you realize that pretty much it's every other religion except for this one sect of Christianity, you start to feel like, okay, so they just think everyone else is insane. But it does kind of just bring the point that this kind of theory has gained enough credibility that it's been morphed into other ideologies that are similar to it. Uh, and the book makes the same claims that I was talking about, the, because I, I had to thumb through it. When you see that, you, you, you have to. Of course. Um, and it does make the same claims. Idolatry um, is idolatry is the big one. People who have take issues with, with the way the Catholic Church is, is run or the way certain belief structures in the church have, that's their prerogative. You know, I mean, Pope John Paul II even said, if I were alive in the 16th century, I probably would have been a Lutheran. You know, that's a pretty heavy thing to say when you yeah. acknowledge that, that Luther may have had a point when he nailed the 95 thesis on the wall in Wittenberg. So. I think some of the ideas are, are pretty fun, though. Um, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church is, in fact, the Whore of Babylon in the Book of Revelations. The Whore of Babylon. I forgot about that. That's Thank a you. clever one. Uh, and my personal favorite is... <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I'm not going to look into it any further than that. But he also claims that the uh, Christogram IHS stands for Isis, Horus, and Seth which makes no sense on a lot of really important Egyptian levels. Yeah, because there's um, nothing to support that. Well, not only that, but the original name of Isis wasn't Isis. That's a Greek adaptation. Isis was was Aset. So it should be A-S-H or A-H-S, which I will admit doesn't really flow off the tongue as easily as you can see. I already messed it up. Well, but yeah, there's some pretty ridiculous things in these uh, in these, this pamphlet and book that he put out. IHS, but, um, was, IHS, for those who are wondering, was an ancient Greek acronym for Jesus. Okay, well, I, I I don't have the translation pulled up. Sorry, that was just kind of an off the cuff. Well, remark, okay, never mind. But, then actually, that does make sense that it yeah. would be ISIS because it was Greek. But the point is, it's still not accurate. Yes. Um, and it's it's referring to those blatant historical inaccuracies that one of those contemporary scholars cited as being the reason why it was yeah. making our list tonight. Yeah. Oh, speaking of, by the way about Dan Brown novels, I said since we're on the topic of Christianity, let's also talk about the more popular one now, which is that Mary Magdalene is the. Uh, the wife of Jesus, that, that the church has supposedly covered that up as a... Right, that is a big conspiracy theory, right? Huge conspiracy theory, yeah. That is pretty much completely fictional, that comes more or less out of that book, right? I mean, it doesn't really have 
too much of a footing before that. Well, so the thing about Dan Brown is, yes, he uses facts to craft his story. What you're telling me, she wasn't his main squeeze? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> what they have said, they have agreed now that Magdalene was not a prostitute. That was a misinterpretation by one of the Gregories. Uh, it's just that she happened was Gregory to the first. wear very provocative clothing, but she wasn't a prostitute. She was not a prostitute at all. Dan Brown does use some references that talk about that. I believe the Gospel of Philip does actually reference companion, use the word companion for Mary Magdalene. And that's one of the key things they say. Companion was the same word they would have used for wife in Greek, I think, when they when they wrote it. It was either Greek or Aramaic. One, I can't remember which language it was written in. Hmm. Case in point, it's a non-canonical gospel. It's not one that made it into the Bible. There's yeah. There was tons of books that didn't make it into the Bible. Um, it's a cookbook, I think, even. Yeah. As Travel a, guide? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as, as a Catholic, I'm told to believe that Jesus lived his whole life as a single man. I don't know the answer. And to be honest, does it really matter? It really doesn't. It shouldn't matter because it doesn't change what the message is, whether the guy was single or whether he was married. So I don't think people need to make a big deal of it <laughs> personally. Yeah, but the people who do are the ones who are offended because they feel like it's a cover-up, like it's conspiracy. And I, you know, you can kind of understand where they're coming from to a certain degree because the Vatican is very secretive. They do have a lot that they, they don't make public. Some of it is honestly for conservation reasons. I mean, they have so many manuscripts there that are so old and so delicate that they, they really shouldn't be scrutinized yeah. for the sake of preserving them. Yeah. But then there's also other legitimate factors that come into it. And, right. that, you know, the Catholic Church is a huge worldwide organization. It's got a lot riding on it. Yeah, and no kidding. I'm One sure... billion Catholics yeah. in the world. And there's things that I'm sure they would best like to forget. Sure, of course. I mean, that's the really seeds for all these things, right? The known unknowns. You're talking about right. big power structures, the American government, the Catholic Church. We know that there's shady things that have happened with both. And uh, I don't know, when you've got something that powerful, it takes up yeah. a lot of space in your mind. And, and, and unfortunately, there is a narrative that gets formed, right? With, with all of these stories, the one common theme here we've talked about is there is a, a very large organization that has a lot of resources. Uh, we like to demonize something that is bigger than us. I think it, it might even be primordial, uh, primal because, you know, you see this giant enemy and you want to, you want to feel afraid of it. It's not even necessarily an enemy. It's like, uh, it's like I, I'm believing that something is stronger than daily chaos. Like this power is so strong that it transcends time and it transcends me dying. It's been here forever. It's going to be here forever. It's just like recognizing something that's all powerful. It's another way of, uh, I don't know. Does so that comparing sound... the way that people think of religions at the same way they think of conspiracy theories. I mean, I don't want to say that. I just, I, I think that it is uh, a powerful draw to wonder about these big power structures because they do hold so much sway Yeah. over the course of, in the story of history and to uh, imagine that they might have uh a lot more than they do. I mean, being agnostic, right? I look at all religions equally. I don't. I don't really see them any differently. I see them all with different variations on the same general themes and ideas. That's, and that's the door a good I thing. come in from as well. Yeah, and that, that's a good thing. I think that it gives me a really great perspective on on the world. But I can also see how somebody who puts faith in a great a higher power can also put faith in something that, again, is maybe not on the same footing as a, as a god, but is also something that is great and beyond their control and seemingly so much larger than them. And therefore they have to bow to it. They have to acknowledge that it is so great uh, and that it can't be not true. You know, it, it's, it's this great big thing, just yeah. like Bill Clinton. Well, like, well, well, before you, you get to that next conspiracy theory, let's talk a second about Rene Descartes. 
Rene Descartes, the Renaissance philosopher, he was the one who basically came up with the idea of duality. But then the more importantly, he wrote his book, The Meditations. Mm-hmm. And the essential argument of The Meditations was that he questioned everything. He had such a, 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 an identity crisis that he began to question whether he even existed. Not, and that's where, in fact, Cogito Ergo Sum comes from. That I think, therefore, I am. Mm-hmm. Because he realizes the only thing he couldn't deny was the fact that he had a mind. Because right. by denying it, he was using his mind. He was able to establish some form of existence, at least, right? And finally, he eventually just kind of, he basically just had to rebuild his understanding of, of the universe uh, at the time. And he, so, of course, he questioned the church. He questioned God, ironic, because he was raised by monks, and he dedicated his book to the monks at the monastery where he was raised. But I think that's okay. You can definitely, you don't have to blindly buy into a theory. You can question everything and, at the end of the day, still come up and realize, oh, okay, no, there are some things that I can still cling to and not look like a lemming. So, wait, what are we saying? That it's human nature for us to want to believe in things that are greater and out of our control, while at the same time questioning them and what they mean holy crap i think that's a conspiracy (laughs) right so it's human nature to want to believe in conspiracies i think i think it's uh there's a powerful drive there to believe in it but it's important to keep that awareness i mean what we were talking about all these theories and a lot of them at least this catholic one draws its roots way back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years but most of these other uh conspiracies that we're looking at seem to come up in the last Hundred years, hundred fifty yeah. years. Do we have anything that's anywhere pre-industrial revolution? Well, the problem with that is for these modern conspiracy theories to have as much power as they do, they have to have as much quote unquote evidence to go along with them. And when you're dealing not with necessarily, well, okay, not necessarily, but they have to have some sort of narrative, right? They have to have something that stitches them together. Yeah. And when you have contemporary accounts, it's easier to do that. When you're looking at the ancient world in particular. You're looking at a population that was far less literate. There wasn't a lot of writing going on. Records are sporadic. And then what you're looking at is stuff like folk devils, like these constructs, these ideas, like witches. We're going to burn the witches. That woman lives by herself. She doesn't talk to too many people. Right. She might be a witch. I mean, we talked about this in our our witches episode uh, back in October. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the point you're getting at is within the industrial age also comes more efficient means of communication right. as well. So that communication, mean, clash of culture, loss of meaning, the atomic bomb, like all these things. Right. Like, yeah, at the very least, it's fueled with fire. And, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I would imagine that ancient people's conspiracy theories were a lot less interesting than ours. I just, I don't think they had much to go off of. Where did all the fruit go from that bushel? <laughs> Where did it go? Yeah. Someone had to have we're, taken it and didn't just disappear. We are always going to try to find a way of explaining what we can't explain. Yeah. Speaking of which, damn it, that temporal vortex keeps. Oh, exactly. here it comes again. All right. Who do we got this week? Oh my god, it's Nikola Tesla. Um, where am I? You're in the nerd cave. This is the year 2014. I, I was out shopping for a very nice coat, and now I am here. Are you sure I am not laying dead from experiment? Is this hell? It is not hell. Are no. you sure? I'm pretty sure. This looks like hell to me. There is demon on wall covered by fire. No, 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 no. Um, Mr. Tesla, that's just a Wolverine poster. It's okay. All right. Um, uh, what what do you want of me? I mean, you're 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 here. You we are talking with history. Please, do you have a message that you want to share with us? Well, there is one thing. Uh, there is this audible.com. 
it's a really very interesting idea is that you can actually, you know, download books onto a device and you can listen to them. They're spoken by people. It is as if you are sitting in a home, in a chair, and someone is reading a book to you with a soothing and comforting voice and does not die from electric shock. This is benefit, I think. Oh, right. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think that... Yeah, not dying from electric shock and being able to listen to a book is, is good. Yeah, that, that that's a good... Well, I, I believe if you'll go to, uh, how do you say, website of Dardonomy.com and you'll click on Audible link, then you can sign up for a 30-day free trial, which is good. And you can listen to a book and not be electrocuted. This is good. Oh, yes, absolutely, yes. Yeah, you know, um, Mr. Tesla, there's so many good books out there. I mean, there's there's some about uh, Tesla, obviously. Uh, there's some about uh, Thomas Edison, kind of in the same genre. Excuse me? Thomas Edison. Y- you know, you worked for Thomas him for a while? Thomas Alva Edison. Yes, the inventor of, of the light bulb. Yes, I know who he is. Uh, how many books does he have compared to... You know, this is not important. I think I should leave now. Goodbye. Um, uh-oh. You know, in retrospect, thinking of the, the the many times that we've talked about Thomas Edison and Tesla kind of butting heads, you, you think we would have not brought that up. Yeah. Well, that was your fault, dude. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, my bad. My bad your, on that You're across to bear. Uh, anyway, folks, if you're interested, you can go to, the, to any of our posts uh, for our episodes or blog posts, and you can click on the Audible link on the side of the page. And if you buy anything, if you sign up for a, a, a trial or a membership, we get a small commission. Yes. Off of that. And it may be a small com- commission, but it's vital to our continuation here at Nerdonomy. And every little small commission adds up and, and can actually help us out quite a bit. Yes, indeed. Tesla was a was a very ingenious man who was unfortunately smeared by uh, a very powerful en- entity. Speaking of smear campaigns, let's talk about Bill Clinton, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Good idea, yes. Bill Clinton has a surprising number of conspiracies uh, a number of them, including his impeachment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, that that was a whole... There's a lot of people who argue that was a, a mechanism by the Republican Party to unseat him. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, less conspiracy and more like... Maybe actually happened. Yeah, maybe actually happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would just like to state that I am a Democrat, uh, not by choice, uh, but because it is the lesser of two evils. And yeah, he, was, he was forced to register at gunpoint to be a Democrat, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I would prefer to not register. Libertarian was a little too was a little too loosey goosey for him. He had yeah. to go. <laughs> green just wasn't getting me anywhere. Green, so, green, uh, sorry, green was too loosey goosey. Yeah. Libertarian was a little too. Hmm. Mm. So you went with I went with, with Democrat. Democrat. Yeah. Honestly, I could care less <laughs> about any political parties. To be to be totally truthful, well, but, that's actually I think a lot how a lot of people feel in California. Yeah. I think they just they had to register to register with. They wanted to be able to vote for a major candidate in the elections, and that's why they they did it. You you vote for whoever you want, but uh, if I was a voting age, I would have voted for yeah, Bill Clinton. I meant in the primaries, so I should have said that, been more clear about that. But That's okay. Yeah. I think we all understood, Brian. Bill Clinton. When I was growing up, there was one thing about Bill Clinton that I remember, because I was a teenager at the time. There's one thing that a teenager is going to remember above all else. Monica Lewinsky? Yeah, sex. <laughs> I was going to say he did not inhale. <laughs> that, that, there's that, oh, too. Oh, that's right. He smoked pot in college, but he did not inhale. I did not, <laughs> not inhale. I did not inhale that marijuana cigarette. Bill, no offense, man. You totally inhaled. I it's blew okay. it out of my nose. <laughs> I actually took it and converted it into saliva, and I spit it out. Because that's what I do, because I'm Bill Clinton. 
You notice I'm doing the half thumb thing. Yeah. That is a conspiracy in of itself. I think. I believe oh. every time he did that on television, it was a it was a signal to the CIA to kill somebody. That's uh, that's they teach that in public speaking because this is a nice neutral hand position because you can't be pointing. That's too um, that's too rigid. That's too in your face. You can't just be standing there. Because then you just look half dead. That would have been a lot of bodies every time he did that. I know. Well, the famous, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, was actually translated as, kill them, kill them. That's like 10 people. Kill them, kill them, kill them all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like 10 whole people. Yeah. Dead. That's real. That, that That's real. What I'm about to talk about is not real. Okay. Everything I'm about to talk about is not real. One of my favorite conspiracies surrounding uh, good old Bill Clinton is the uh, Clinton body count. It's now, a beautiful one. It's it's oh it's it's an evolving one. It's one that started back in 1993 and has kind of blossomed into what it is now. And there are have been a variety of different lists that have come out. Um, I think the initial list had something like 35 different people that were on it, or 34 different people on it back in 1993. Uh, and that first list, and just to clarify, what are we talking about? Well, there's a theory, there's a conspiracy theory that s says that there are a wide variety of people who are connected to the Clintons who have died under mysterious circumstances. And in order for them to qualify for this list, it's extremely important to understand that uh, every time that a death is presented, it must be mysterious. All accidental deaths should be listed as suspicious. Every single suicide should be ruled as a suicide. Okay. Shouldn't actually be a suicide. It should be ruled as a suicide. And pretty much you have to throw away all reality and logic to end up on this list. So let's just have that out so Continue, everyone understands. Please. It right this away. sounds like this could be an episode on all on itself. Oh, it easily could be. And we're going to have to kind of be, you know. Um, a Bef little bit uh, restrained. Before we continue, today. I'm just imagining him uh, packing a 44 a la Dirty Harry and walking through the West Wing uh, doing his dirty work. Oh, yeah. He was just shooting. That's what this story left. is, right? This is, it's a little different. Essentially, there's a variety of people who end up dead. None of them claim to have been from his hand, they've all been orchestrated by Clinton. Gotcha. Some of them never even met Bill Clinton. Some of them never really had much of a connection with Bill Clinton except for a theorized connection to Bill Clinton. Like, oh, well, Bill Clinton gave a speech uh, one day when he, was, <laughs> when he was running for governor of Arkansas. And this person who was dead wasn't even in that audience, but, but his friend was. Yep. <laughs> and his friend called him and talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much it. Some of them are about as ridiculous as that. So wow. the first list that came out was in 1993. And this original list, it was put out there and compiled by one by the name of Linda Thompson. Now, Linda Thompson was a lawyer uh, in Indiana who, in 1993, actually quit her job that she had been at for many years and joined an organization called the American Justice Federation. And it is a, a group of people who are all about guns, all about conspiracy theories, all about putting out uh, shortwave radio programs and computer bulletin boards, and pretty much disseminating as much misinformation as humanly possible. I believe they had robot. supporting roles on the X-Files. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I believe they were inspiring much of this the This is not itself. what the internet was invented for, folks. No, it wasn't. Ironically invented by 
No. His vice president. No. No, that's a conspiracy theory, damn it. No, that's just a fallacy is what that is. <laughs> yes. You, you weren't there for that episode. No, I did, I, did listen to, I did listen to it. Yes. I did listen. To, I was lamiserating, yes. <laughs> um, no, I know. I was making a joke. I know. I know that Al Gore did not invent the internet. Um, but her, her list was actually used by a, a representative by the name of William Danmere who took 24 of those people who were on the list in 1994, actually went ahead and and called for hearings surrounding this matter. So he made it a a national debate. And it was quickly overshadowed in the public media, right, in the big media. Uh, But it it had a lasting and surviving life that has continued on the internet and has become this big phenomenon. So the list has changed, and it's included people, and it's subtracted people, and, you know, there's been all sorts of different uh, additions over the years, some relatively recently anyway. There are so many, I I can't go through them all, but I I picked out a couple that I thought were some of the more interesting ones. So this I'm going to read from the 2007 version of the list verbatim, okay? Uh, James McDougall, Clinton's convicted whitewater partner, died of an apparent heart attack while in solitary confinement. He was a key witness in the Ken Starr investigation. Mm. So James McDougall, you guys know anything about this guy? Mm-mm. Refresh your memories, please. So Whitewater was a uh, company that the Clintons owned. It was a real estate company. Uh, James and his wife got in a bit of hot water for mishandling the company, and the Clintons were more or less uh, excused of any wrongdoing. But uh, James ended up going to, to prison and was actually placed in solitary confinement. That is all very true. However, he had also suffered from heart disease. Uh, he had a pre-existing heart condition. Uh, he was... Not in very good health at all. Uh, Days before he died, he would take his medication rather sporadically. There were times when he wasn't taking it at all. Uh, There were moments where he was alert and well-oriented, and there were signs when he was really in bad shape. So his health was all over the place, topsy-turvy. And it is not a surprise at all that he ended up suffering a massive heart attack and dying. So this is not Bill Clinton going in and killing him before he's able to, you know, confess to all the wrongdoings that Bill Clinton has ever done. This is just... Um, the stress of prison probably being too much for him and killing him, mm-hmm. considering he had a shoddy heart condition to begin with. Yeah, exactly. How about uh, Mary Mahoney? Uh, former White House intern gunned down in a coffee shop. Nothing was taken. It was suspected that she was about to testify about sexual harassment at the White House. So this is, this is interesting because she passed away in uh, 1997. Okay, so July 6, 1997. And the whole thing with uh, Monica Lewinsky was going to, you know, break out not too long after that. And, uh, of course, there's, there's nothing to ever substantiate this except for the fact that she died and she was an intern. And therefore, she must have been about to confess to having no, sex with Bill No, 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 no. When an intern has a complaint, you do what every other self-respecting public politician does and you pay them off. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this. What do you think... Um, gun downed is referring to. How, how do you think that would have gone? Gun down implies shot multiple times, like and it's like this horrific. I just get this horrific scene of like windows being shattered. Yeah, I'm right. imagining her like picking up melons at the corner market and dudes coming out of a very godfather old old, old, exactly. old Buick and yeah. So she's at this coffee shop. She's sitting down. She's having some coffee. Somebody comes out with a gun, mm-hmm. shoots her dead, runs away. Doesn't take anything. It's suspected it and, was a robbery. And probably there also would have been witnesses to that since it was a public space. Oh, there were witnesses. They died as well. Oh, good. This was a failed robbery. That little bit chooses to ignore the fact that she was actually a manager at Starbucks. And she was closing up shop. She was with two other employees. A gunman entered into the building, hurried them in the back, 
held them at gunpoint, demanding that they open up the safe and give him all the money. Mahoney made a run for the door. He fired a warning shot into the ceiling. She then turned around and went for the gun. And when she grabbed for the gun, he shot her dead. He then panicked, shot the other two people dead, and then ran out and ran away. So he didn't, you know, come by all slick and go and just kill her and leave the whole rest of the scene and some bizarre attempt at a robbery, right? It was a panicked guy who had probably never robbed a place before, probably never held a gun before, who panicked and shot and killed three people. Tragically, this is a very tragic death of this this young lady. Or a genius ploy. No, I'm pretty sure it was just a tragic death. Okay. But but the, the conspiracy theorists would say, oh, this person was paid off. Oh, of course. They had to have completely changed it around. And it's pretty ridiculous because one of the reasons why they were saying that this was somehow connected to an intern with wrongdoing um, is that uh, just before the whole Monica Lewinsky scandal broke, uh, there was a, a former White House staffer with the initial of M, and that was the, the person who was later turn out to be Monica Lewinsky, but nobody really knew who it was at the time, and so people associate it with being this person. Yeah. Even though shortly thereafter it came out that it was Monica Lewinsky, and, you know, completely takes it off the table, but people want to ignore facts in favor of something that's convenient. Now, what do you think two teenagers high on drugs who died tragically by being run over by a train, who fell asleep on train tracks, would have to do with Bill Clinton? Absolutely nothing. Yeah, that's what makes sense. Uh, Conspiracy theorists, however, have a different idea. So number 22 and 23 on this list are uh, Kevin Ives and Don Henry, 17-year-old boys who apparently saw something related to drugs in Mina by accident late at night, uh, that's in Arkansas, Uh, officially ruled an accidental death on the train tracks, but evidence shows they died before being placed on the tracks, one of a crushed skull and the other of a of a knife knife wound to the back. Wow. How much remains of people who are asleep on tracks? Uh apparently enough to be able to perform a medical examination and again, very tragic, you know, kids, right? 17-year-old boys. They died on the 23rd of August 1987 and this is of course when Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas. Uh the conspiracy theorists would have you believe that not only is Bill Clinton a a hardened murderer who has murdered over 50 people, but he was also a drug lord who was uh, moving drugs in and out of Arkansas, and he was the one responsible for somehow connecting these kids to drugs. Right? Obviously, they had to have seen some sort of drug deal gone down, and it had to have been connected to Bill Clinton because it was obvious. They knew he inhaled. They knew he inhaled, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and what later examination actually found out is that uh, these kids could very well have actually been killed before they were put on those train tracks. But they were probably killed by the the person that they were stealing drugs from the day before. Apparently they had stolen some cocaine from somebody who was involved in drug dealing, ended up getting killed, thrown on the train tracks, trying to make it look like an accident, really wasn't. And then there's a series of other deaths that are all surrounding these kids. Uh, one of them died in a high-speed high uh, motorcycle accident, because, you know, nobody ever dies in high-speed motor accidents. Another one was stabbed to death. Of course, people connected to drug dealers never actually get stabbed to death. Of course they don't. They just get shot. Yeah. Stabbings are clearly orchestrated by somebody else. Um, A2. People never get shot in the woods. Never. Ever. You can ask Vice President Dick Cheney. Especially when hunting. Especially when hunting. That (laughs) never happens. So several of these entries on the list all have to do with these kids. People who are somehow connected to these kids, therefore... 
they knew something about the Clinton cover-up, and so they were covering something up, and therefore they had to be killed and taken out. Uh, another one, James Milam, this is still connected to these kids, had information on the Ives and Henry deaths. doesn't say how he had that information. Uh, he, it says he was decapitated. The coroner ruled death due to natural causes. Interesting note. This is the same coroner that ruled that those kids were killed by the train and not by their real wounds that were caused by these drug dealers who had them killed. So this guy has absolutely no idea what he's talking about to begin with. A lot of medical examiners in the United States, believe it or not, have very, very questionable credentials. Coroners can be anybody. You know, you can sign up and become a coroner and not have to have any kind of... Even in California? Yeah. You don't have to have any kind of medical degree or knowledge. And you can be there to to rule essentially how somebody died. Wow. Medical examiners are a little different, right? They take it to the next level, and some of them are blatantly incompetent, like this guy was. But the this <laughs> just to show you how insane this guy was, he claimed that the decapitation uh, was actually caused by this man's dog eating his head, and that's why there was no head. Whole head. Whole head. Ate the whole head. Whole head. Wow. Yeah. So putting a lot of credit a, on this that's, one. That's a hungry dog. It's a big dog. <laughs> And that dog would have had to be in, been have been near starvation to do that. I mean, what the that's that's just ludicrous. My favorite part is he this guy died three months before Ives and Henry died. So somehow he knew about this Clinton infused drug deal or whatever it was, drug activity, right? They don't specify that went wrong three months before it actually happened, then died, presumably killed, and had his head eaten by a dog. So that makes sense. Amazing. I won't go too much more into this. You can find a full list online. In our show notes, I actually put the article that I found this in from Snopes. I love Snopes. They're fantastic. They have some really great articles on there. And this one is extremely extensive uh, where they pick apart each of these deaths. But uh, number 33 through 44 on this list that I'm looking at are all these former bodyguards who are now dead. Most of them, however, died in service in the military. And yet somehow that was orchestrated by Bill Clinton. So I think we can safely acknowledge from this list here that people will look at anything and find any excuse to put wrongdoing on somebody they don't like. What I find most ironic about this is that on this list, nowhere on this list, is the very woman who started this whole conspiracy. Because she herself, Linda Thompson, died back in, died back in 2008, and yet she's not on the list. And she died from a drug overdose supposedly accidental and yet well, she hasn't made the list well i mean all overdoses are accidental no one's intending to do a oh, dose of drugs and say oh no i'm gonna overdo it this time oh yeah they do if they've been brainwashed into doing so which we all know is a tactic of the united states government uh particularly bill clinton who brainwashed the majority of these people into dying into very convenient ways that could later be manipulated into stuff that is complete and total nonsense so Thank you, Bill Clinton, for orchestrating the murder of all of these people and giving us something to talk about tonight. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, some of my favorite conspiracy theories out there are the ones that we actually have found out have some fact in them. Hmm. My favorite being MK Ultra, Project mm. MK Ultra. Yeah, this is a real thing. Yeah. It began in the early 1950s, uh, and it saw the CIA... Dosing unwitting test subjects with different drugs, causing drug addiction, and then forcing people to go through uh, withdrawal, all in an effort to sort of uh, find out in what diminished psychological states people might be willing to give up different kinds of information. Yeah, and, and yeah. it wasn't just limited to drugs either. I mean, we're talking about... Not at all. 
attempts at hypnosis, sensory deprivation, forced isolation, uh, verbal and sexual abuse. Uh, all of these things are in themselves various forms of torture, uh, among other different forms of torture. So we're talking about horrible, nasty things. Yeah, I and mean, these are things that have been alluded to in a couple of major movies, too. I mean, it's to the point now where we, for those who have read up on it, or uh, they've kind of accepted that at least the government experimented with LSD, but we don't know to what full extent. But like the... um. The movie The Men Who Stare at Goats, a couple of years ago with Ewan McGregor mm-hmm. and Jeff Bridges, they have a whole scene where they, their whole goal is they're a secret part of the CAA who's trying to develop superhumans. And uh, as ridiculous as the plot sounds, it's there's some basis in fact on it. And they do the same thing. They give LSD to um, this man who ends up, and they subject him to all these very stressing experiments. Like they, they, they do flashing lights, they play music and things like that. And he just goes berserk and ends up killing himself quite publicly in this facility so it's well it, that's fiction i'm sure it's based in some sort of reality i mean you hear about these horrible things we just described i mean even outside of anything just the idea of the government deciding to dose an unwitting person with lsd is completely terrifying to me i mean you're talking about putting somebody under 12 hours of extreme emotional and psychological duress and to watch them from afar to see what you can do they had a sub-project called Project Artichoke, and uh, according to the Wikipedia page... I believe that was orchestrated in Castro Valley, not not too far from where we are right now, the artichoke capital of the uh-huh. world. Apparently it began uh, in 1951, and one memo that was uh, brought out of the program states the following. It's a question, kind of their mission statement was, can we get control of an individual to the point where he will, he or she will do our bidding against his will and even against fundamental laws of nature, such as self-preservation? That just terrifies me completely. And I, I know there's still tons of redaction on these documents, and, and it's one of these things that uh, we still don't have full information about. But to me, the idea of these sort of more mundane experiments and conspiracies is far more terrifying to me than time travel or presidential assassinations. Right, because there is some basis in fact. And it's so much more tactile and so much, uh, I don't know, there's just... When you, when you look at a, a conspiracy that's uh, more far-reaching, it can seem removed and it's fascinating and, and sort of something you can get swept up in. You know, you can look at loose change and sort of put pieces together from afar, but something like this individual people being affected by individual parts of the government's you know it's scary scarier yeah 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 what i find so fascinating is how open and transparent the government has been about it though and when this whole thing was shut down in 1975 and later released in the freedom of information act pretty much uh, a year or two later obviously we haven't got the full scope of it but they're talking about some pretty serious stuff and they're they're admitting to doing a lot of these things that actually detracts from a lot of these other conspiracy theories, right? So why is the government willing to admit to doing so many really awful, horrible things uh, with the CIA and not willing to admit to some pretty awesomely cool stuff like making ships disappear? So, you know, I mean, it, it makes sense, I think, that this is something that a lot of organizations, look at the KGB, my God, I mean, the KGB was doing pretty much the same exact thing uh, as as the CIA, the Japanese major... as well. Back oh, yeah. in World China. War II, they had uh, something called Unit 731. They were working on live vivisection of people, these incredibly horrific scientific experiments, subjecting people to exposure to the bubonic plague, uh, to all sorts of diseases, 
chemical agents, all that kind of stuff. And uh, there's a lot of uh, documented evidence of that stuff. And that it's another one of those seeds for these stories to kind of grow out of. Yeah, but there's been a lot of research done since a lot of this information has become public. And almost universally, it is pretty much accepted that you cannot force somebody to do something that is against their moral fiber. Even through hypnosis and other forms of, of intense emotional distress that's been put upon people, you, you really just can't get them to do something unless they really want to be able to do it. That's not to say that you can't find somebody, though, who would be willing to do that, somebody who would have these kind of amoral, evil, if you will, tendencies, right? Because evil is simply just a lack of empathy. We've talked about that on the podcast before. And if you could, you could you could potentially create that kind of Manchurian candidate, I suppose, right? Maybe not to the extent that you see in popular media, but you could probably, under the right conditions, get somebody to act the way you want to. Brainwashing, mind control. Sometimes that's just based on the political environment that you have. I mean, my God, look at Nazi Germany. You know, think about all of those people who were in the SS it's who not committed even... these horrible crimes against humanity. I mean, it's not even the, the idea of mind control working that scares me. It's the thing that, that we tried. We tried. We went out and really, really tried in all sorts of ways to, to see what we could do with that. And that is completely nerve-wracking to me. Yeah. Well, folks, there you have it. Some pretty outlandish, pretty insane, pretty crazy, and in some cases pretty real and scary uh, ideas surrounding conspiracy theories. And you so, know what, folks? More than ever... Don't take our word for it. Look up the information yourselves. Find it from credible resources. Wikipedia is cited, and the article he referred to has citations in it. So that one is that one definitely gets the A+. Um, Snopes.com, tremendous place for, for breaking down urban legends and conspiracy theories. The best resource out there. And they'll acknowledge whenever they've gotten something wrong. And they'll go back and they'll re-edit a previous article they had to update it and make sure that it stays uh, current and factual. But guys, Absolutely. guys, 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 what if Snopes is a conspiracy? Oh my god. I never thought of that. I did. You did? Mm-hmm. What do you think? I, I, <laughs> I, I had the thought once, and I'm pretty sure I was, I think I was dealing with the head flu or something, so. Okay, because we were, Anders and I were kidding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was kidding too, I never had a head flu. Okay, sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, but no, it's it's just total nonsense. Snopes knows what they're doing. They they try to know, to know what they're doing at least, and they do it right most of the time. Yeah, so, most of the time. There you go. All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening uh, today. We uh, we as always value your listenership, and we as always ask for a, a little donation if you can. Helps us out here at Notonomy. Helps keep us going. Maybe that's uh, taking some advice we gave you during that advertisement earlier in the podcast. Hey, maybe it's just uh, heading over to our website, clicking on that donation button and giving a little bit out of the kindness of your heart. And of course, as we've talked about, we have our Audible affiliation and also our Amazon affiliation. You can click on the links from our previous episodes uh, or Nerds and Film episodes. Or and blog posts or what Exactly. Have you. And if you buy anything related to that link through Amazon.com, we will get a small commission off of that which helps us out here indeed and you know what? let's keep the conversation going you can follow us through our social media accounts so of course we're on facebook and twitter at nerdonomy but you can also follow us personally i'm at brian moriarty i'm at the brickmont do you have a twitter handle i don't you don't okay well living off the grid man <laughs> <laughs> well you didn't think the the tinfoil hat was kind of a dead giveaway there you i really should have known him. i should have known you know, where for, is your bunker, by the I'm way? I'm pretty sure it's lovely. I'm not telling. You know, Twitter's got to be pretty safe. If they could orchestrate an entire revolution in Egypt through Twitter, 
Um, I think they did that. <laughs> they, did, they, they did do that. If they could, if a revolution can be they've done that twice, actually. Yeah, if they can orchestrate that over Twitter, I'm pretty sure you can be on the grid with Twitter and be okay. The hat says no. All right, fine. Says no. The hat is talking to you. <laughs> uh, Eric, where's the gun? <laughs> Sorry, I got my Sonic. We're good. Okay, good, good. All right, folks. Until next time, stay nerdy and tune into us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Adios. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turn upside down. And I'd like to take a minute. Just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. In West Philadelphia, born and raised. On the playground was where I spent most of my days. Chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool. And all shooting some b-ball outside of the school. When a couple of guys who were up to no good started making trouble in my neighborhood. I got in one little fight and my mom got scared. She said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Bel Air. I whistled for the cab, and when it came near, the license plate said fresh and had a dice in the mirror. If anything, I could say that this cab was rare. But I thought, not forget it, your home's to Bel Air. I pulled up the house about seven or eight, and I yelled to the cabbie, yo, Holmes, smell you later. I looked at my kingdom. I was finally there to sit on my throne as the Prince, Prince of, of Bel-Air. Bel-Air.